From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. This is Abraham Kim, your host of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. This is our 11th and last episode for the season. It's been a rich couple of months of recording stories and interviews examining numerous topics through the lives of Korean American leaders. We examined issues ranging from mental health and parent-teenager relations to non-traditional Asian American career tracks in the arts and music, as well as representation in corporate boardrooms. Although our topics have been diverse, The common theme tying together our season is the exploration of tough issues that we as Korean Americans do not often address or have had stigmatism around in our community. But we all recognize the importance of talking about these issues more frequently to find solutions or new thinking. Today we aptly bring an end to our second season with this podcast episode that asks the fundamental question, who writes our stories? As our country is gripped in a nationwide conversation and struggle around race, identity, justice, and oppression, I feel it is an appropriate way to end this rich season of podcast. This episode examines identity, culture, and the power of narratives. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Han, a third-generation Korean-American award-winning author of Swimming in Hong Kong, a fictional book that explores the personal lives of outsiders struggling to navigate complex societies in Hong Kong, Korea, and the United States. In my conversation with Stephanie, we touch upon a wide range of issues, from the art and science of reading and writing to exploring what it means to be a Korean American. We also discuss what it means to write our own personal stories. When we don't see ourselves represented in literature or novels, it's often difficult and intimidating to be the first. But Stephanie reminds us that we have to make that leap, both for ourselves and for others in our communities. And as we talk about identity and culture, Stephanie also shares the concept of polyculturalism, not to be confused with multiculturalism. This intersectional lens teaches us that our culture and identity communities are living, organic, and evolving. We all have a place in the world to shape our identity with our ideas and our art forms. Plus, how are we shaped by people from other cultures and identities and how we in turn shape them? This is an amazing conversation for literary enthusiasts, aspiring writers, parents teaching reading to their kids, and any Korean American who is curious about how our identity communities are shaped. Without further ado, let's get right into this conversation. I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Stephanie Han. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast. My name is Abraham Kim. I'm the host for today's show, and I'm really honored to have Dr. Stephanie Han from Hawaii. Welcome, Stephanie. Aloha. Thanks for having me. Let's uh, let's start from the beginning of your life. Uh, please share with us uh, about your parents and your immigration experience. Were you born here uh, in the United States, or did you immigrate as a as a young child? 
I was actually born in the United States in St. Louis, Missouri. When I was born in the early 60s, there were so few Asian American babies that actually they used to do racial classification. I was born right after the Civil Rights Act. So I was classified as brown and my mother petitioned the court and had me changed to yellow. So this is uh, how rare it was to be an Asian American then in the Midwest. But my family is from the very first group of 3,000 immigrants um, from Korea that came to Hawaii from 1903 to five. And some went on obviously from that immigrant group to California. But in terms of my family history, there's a closeness I have to my maternal line and they're rooted here in Hawaii. And your father came for education or did he come here for a job? Yeah. Well, my father, um, Tajun Yu, he was a medical doctor in the early 20s and he won uh, then, it was called basically the Atomic Bomb Scholarship. It was given to one scholar in all of Korea and they could choose and go to basically any graduate program. And he chose to study biophysics at UC Berkeley. He was already a medical doctor, and that's where he met my mother. And so then he stayed in the United States, um, and they were these uh, kind of adventuring post-Hawaii statehood early pioneers living, you know, in places like Iowa and I guess Missouri and Memphis, where there's not actually many Korean Americans. Yeah, so my, my father was from Seoul and from that kind of brain drain that Korea experienced in the early 60s. A lot of the scholars and people post-war sought opportunity overseas, and then they stayed. So that was my father's side. And then my mother's side was the working class Koreans who came for opportunity and to practice their Christianity, their Christian faith. My great-great-grandfather was a Christian missionary, actually. So it was a kind of a combination of the different immigrant cycles. And I feel that that was very profoundly important in terms of my outlook as a Korean American and my experience. You mentioned you moved around quite a bit uh, when you were growing up as a child. Uh, what was your upbringing like? Uh, you, you mentioned, obviously, your father was a scholar and your mother also grew up in a, a more traditional family. Um, how was your upbringing? Um, my mother was a very much a career homemaker. She was uh, one of the women, obviously, many stay-at-home mothers. They're the ones that are often the backbone of the community, you know, running all the teachers and the, you know, organizations and, and doing these things to build community. And that was my mother. And my father was a medical resident first. And then after he got his U.S. green card, he was drafted within weeks. And so he was drafted for the Vietnam War, but what we did was he served on a base in Seoul, in Korea. And so I did live in Korea when I was about five to six and a half or something, you know, as a small child, a year and a half. And then we were in the base in the Presidio and San Francisco was used to be a base, now it's not. And then he went on to the University of Iowa and to Tennessee. So, and then I went east to school. So, you know, I, I moved around a lot. I moved every year until I was about eight or nine. 
And then I continued that pattern, I guess, because I got so accustomed to it, you know, like a lot of military brats, as they say, do move around. Was it a lonely experience for you moving around so much? Yeah, actually, I think because you get used to moving, which is a different skill set than staying, right? You know, in terms of what you develop, but it was difficult for me often to make friends. And also I was, I ended up living in a lot of different areas where there weren't other Asian American kids. And so, you know, you learn to feel your difference profoundly and you can isolate as a result. And so I remember telling my mom, mom, you know, I, I don't have friends, you know, how am I going to make a friend, which as a mother, I think, oh my gosh, that's like the saddest thing I'd ever hear, right? from my own child. And, but my mom was a 1970s, you know, mom. And so, you know, sort of really practical. And, you know, so she said, well, if you read a book, you'll always have a friend in a book. And she was right. So we took many trips to the library together. And I would check out stacks and stacks of books. And the people in the books became my world and my friends when I could find no solace outside of that. And so that's how my imagination developed. And that's how I learned to see different aspects of the world and to try to understand things really through books because sometimes people's interactions seem more confusing to me, you know, about ideas of race or gender. Of course, now I can look back and see you know, what did it seem like in this neighborhood, you know, this rural Iowa neighborhood, all of a sudden, boom, this Korean American family pops up. I mean, we might as well have descended from Mars, you know, and, um, you know, so there's curiosity, but also it's like slight suspicion. And so some children, the way they react, you know, it's dependent on the family and, and it could be curiosity, but you, it's also trying to understand why people are acting as if you're a spectacle rather than a human being, right? So it's not necessarily that people are always cruel, but, you know, you're being observed. (laughs) I'm sure, like you said, they were curious about who you are. And I'm sure uh, for many, I I imagine you were the first Asian American they've seen in their neighborhood, Oh, yeah. I mean, in elementary school, it was me and then, again, my sister. So they changed, I remember, the school district during the time I was there. And so we moved in, and then we were bused to this really rural place. It was like farmers' kids and, you know, working-class Iowa families. And I was definitely the first Asian they'd seen. If they came over, I'd say, you know, mom, can we not have kimchi? You know, can we just do, can you just boil some potatoes? Can we, you know, I was trying to do whatever to fit in, right? I mean, this is a, it's a normal kid thing, right? And I remember my mother would do these things and my father would be supportive of the international fair. We'd bring Korean food and, you know, to try to, you know, my parents, I really have a lot of respect for what they tried to do, which was in many ways, they pioneered their community. They were people who loved to entertain and they had all different kinds of people because my dad had a lab. He had a very diverse lab would show up 
in our living room. And it is, it, it is those kinds of gestures, inviting people to share a meal, to have a laugh, to picnic, to barbecue. I mean, that's how integration of the heart ultimately happens. And that's how you know, cultural understanding happens. We can change the laws, we can do these things, but the laws, in order for the laws to change, people have to also know each other, right? It can't be an abstract concept. So, you know, as an adult who's not quite as maybe cheery, extroverted like my my mother is, you know, always at the drop of a hat willing to have, you know, 15 people over for dinner, you know, with 20 minutes notice. Um, <laughs> I have a lot of respect for um, how that kind of energy changes a community and changes minds and changes lives. Mm-hmm. Tell me about some of the books that you read growing up and some of the books that had lasting impact on you as you reflect back to your childhood and when you're growing up in your household. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as I can remember, you know, and I still save them. Um, there's a, there was a book called I Can Fly. And that was the very first book I ever had. I think I was two years old. And my mother had checked it out from the library. And um, she said, I loved it. So, she, I loved it so much. She went and she ordered it from the publisher. And I realized looking at it now, I mean, I put crayon all over it, you know, so <laughs> it's terrible now, but I kept it, um, that that little girl had black hair. So the picture book has a little girl who actually projects and looks like a little Asian girl doing all these things like swimming like a fish or I can't, you know, I can't fly, so can I. And I thought those kinds of images really stay with you. You know, it's important for literature to reflect back in a way, who the child is, as, as well as open other doors. And so, you know, from my very early childhood, my mother would read poetry, like Robert Louis Stevenson or children's books. And then as I got a little older, you know, after especially I went to boarding school, it became very important for me to figure out a cultural identity and who I was. And to be honest, there was a dearth of books at the time. There really weren't many Asian American writers to read. In fact, I never read one until I was 16 years old and I read Maxine Hong Kingston's Woman Warrior. What I did read was I read African American writers. And so African American literature profoundly influenced me. And I think it's because it was the narrative of being an outsider, the narrative of an other, that, you know, somebody finally putting words on a piece of paper or what it might felt like to be discriminated against. And I didn't have access necessarily to this. But yeah, the first big book that I remember that really influenced me was Maxine Hong Kingston's uh, Woman Warrior. I remember being in Memphis, you know, I was a board probably really impossible 16-year-old girl (laughs) and reading this uh, book. And I was, all of a sudden I was riveted. And really, I don't even think it was the entire book. I'll be honest. It was the very first opening sequence where it's this girl going through the jungle and, you know, she has weapons and she's like, she's, she's just this warrior. She is a woman warrior. And it was so appealing to me because she was empowered And she was adventuring and she was living out this kind of desire to act in a way that I hadn't, you know, if I looked around, I didn't see necessarily 
Asian Americans running around in the village <laughs> in, in a jungle setting, <laughs> being defiant, right? And so that was very appealing. I tried to look for anything that was Asian American, and, you know, whether that was on the, you know, brief TV commercials or like a single image of a model who was Asian. I would just like flip the catalog and look and embrace this image. I wanted it reflected back. But I remember I read this book and, it, you know, it has its merits. It's actually a decent book. It's um, Fifth Chinese Daughter or something by Jade Snow Wong. And I like the book, but, you know, she was a little too much of a goody goody. That really wasn't very fun to read. It was good to read in that, um, and I still remember how she described um, making rice, um, and that she was, uh, you know, independent kind of Chinese American daughter. But you know, she was a little boring. She was doing everything her parents said she should do. <laughs> so you know, when I was reading, I wanted to read about people who ask questions or maybe they didn't do the right thing. And, you know, what happened? You find books as an escape for you? I mean, I guess. Oh yeah. And trying to figure out how, if the, if something wasn't right, and this is why I think literature is important. If, if there wasn't something I could figure out in my real life, I tried to go to a book for an answer and there was, there was just not enough of those kinds of stories to reflect back at me. And then as time moved on, obviously Asian American literature has moved on. There's way more literature. There's more African American literature. I started reading native American stories also. And you know, the classics, Jane Austen, all those people. So I think it's important to know both canonical works and part of the new canon, American literary canon, to get a good grip on who we are as individuals, as a nation, as sort of English speakers in a certain part of the world. Yeah. Right? Um, you once said an interesting quote, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but reading is an act of deep empathy. What did you mean by that? Well, reading is, I mean, from writer to reader, it's a big brain dump, if you think about it. So it's the writer is in his or her mind or their mind making up stories and images and pictures and putting this down on paper. And you as a reader are entering the mind of this writer and you must imagine what this writer is thinking because they are not giving you any photograph. It's very different than an experience of looking at an image. There's no direct sound that's coming through. There's no touch. There's no taste, just a visual. You're reading the words and then you must imagine in your mind all the sensory feelings and emotions and experiences that go with this. So it requires you to empathize, to have a great deal of empathy with the character and what the character is going through in order to really enter that that space. So it requires the writer to create in such a way that the reader is able to experience empathy for that particular character. And you as a reader also have to be open that you're willing to trust the writer to give you this experience. So, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit of a two-way street here, but it, it is an act of empathy and it's an act of imagination on the part of the reader. We are not passive recipients. You know, that's a mistake. 
reading actually is an act of imagination mm. also. We must what, imagine. What's, um, it sounds like reading is an art form as well as uh, not only writing. How do, how do you... How do you develop that? Is it is it just reading more literature, or is it how do you develop that art form of reading and having that, as you say, this connection with the writer and almost kind of, you know, merging your imagination together as you're as they're painting and you're receiving and you're painting as well in your mind, um, you know, as as a, as a writer as well as a reader, how do you develop that muscle as a reader? I think a lot of that is a matter of practice. And I'll be honest, it's as time is going on and we're moving more and more to a society that's dependent on um, visuals to cue us for ideas of story. It is more difficult and more challenging for younger people to read in the same way. If you tell many children who are quite young, okay, you can play a video game for an hour, <laughs> or you can read about an adventure for an hour. You know, it's, it's just very hard to compete. So what it requires is an attention to being still and an attention to um, allowing yourself to, um, I would say, enter a space of being quiet. And we don't do that enough in our modern society. We feel the need that we always need to be scheduled, that we have to, you know, be productive 24-7, that we have to do a lot of output. But actually what will develop a skill of reading is being still and being okay with that. And yes, allowing yourself or the child to get kind of, you know, daydream and be bored and then seek answers in other ways. If we, it's, it's a kind of a matter of over, overstimulation, right? And another thing, so beyond that, I think it's um, just kind of making it part of your routine. You know, do you read at night, you know, before going to bed? And, and we cut that out. All parents now, most, I would say, sort of middle-class parents or parents who kind of aspire for their children on some level, always every night before they would go to bed would read to their child. And it stops when they're 10, right? 11. All of a sudden the parents like, okay, yeah, you're on your own. You know, thank God I don't have to do that anymore. (laughs) I can do whatever, you know, I got stuff to do. But what happens is you would be shocked. And I see this having taught secondary, um, children just stop reading. Then they just, they won't read because you're not either reading alongside them or you're not um, requiring that they read it before bed. So it is a lifelong, it needs to be continually, (laughs) not enforced, but encouraged, right? And another thing is people do is they do a lot of like self-flagellation about like, I should have read this book or this book is hard and boring, but I know after four hours it'll get better. Guess what? Maybe it won't. And so you should cut yourself some slack. If you're not interested after four hours, maybe it's the wrong book for you. In fact, I would reduce four hours to two hours. And I would say if you're 16 and under, like it's one hour. <laughs> you know, if, you, if your imagination is not... Um, engaged. There are millions of other books to read and pick another book. We do not have to torture ourselves. 
So reading must become first and foremost uh, entertainment. If it is not entertaining, you will not read. Too many people, and I think I see this with a lot of well-intentioned parents say, you know, reading is, you know, it's like presented as something miserable, right? Reading should be fun. So, and when, when students are much younger, they should never be reading at a difficult level. So to read for entertainment, you're usually reading one grade level below. So this is important, and I didn't really know this either. This is important um, when you're looking at, you know, books that parents select for children, books that you as a college student or high school student are reading, you know, and you're thinking, oh, I should read a harder book. No, it's a numbers game. It's fun. Just read. You don't have to read a hard book. Just read a fun book. That's all it is. And that fun book, continuously reading fun books and easy books, now and then you'll dip into a harder one and you'll be surprised. Your studies will change. Um, the way you approach reading will change. But there's no reason why we must torture ourselves with difficult, dry books that we don't enjoy. Um, you, you also have spoken about that there's an integral connection between reading and writing. Um, I'm wondering if your hunger for reading eventually contributed to your choice to become a writer. Um, share with me that journey in your life. Yeah, I think so, because reading is connected to writing. You know, I say to my students, if I took two of you um, and I told one person to read 50 books, for one year and don't write anything. And I told the other student, no, you must do these exercises and do worksheets and do not read for a year. At the end of one year, the student who did absolutely no writing but read will be a far superior writer than the one who practiced writing every single day because you just have sentence patterns and they become something that's in your body. Vocabulary shifts and will come out. It doesn't matter if you're saying the word wrong or not. You know, I, I want to move away from this idea of like reading being miserable, you know, which is like a big conscious, <laughs> it seems to be the, you know, for many people, that's how they associate it, like a, a miserable task. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> but writing as a profession, uh, I think you also said uh, at another interview that I read that uh, you do not choose to be a writer, but writing chooses you. Yeah, because I think if you um, are in the habit often of reading, then you learn to express yourself through words in that way. Okay, so that is the connection, I guess, to add on to your last question about the story, like how how is it connected? It's connected in study, but it's also, it becomes how you communicate, right? Um, and so because it becomes how you communicate, Maybe you feel like you have to communicate a lot. <laughs> so you, you, you start to write and you start to tell these stories. I mean, honestly, there's, um, you know, there's different kinds of ways people write. You know, sometimes everybody, let's say they write for work. They might write to express themselves privately in a diary or journal. They might be writing letters to win someone's love. Um, they might be um, trying to record a family history, or they may be a person who wants to 
write stories or tell stories. Those are all shades of the same kind of um, use of text and words. It's just, I think when the person is one of those people who um, is rather compulsive and wants to, you know, feels a need to tell and narrate these stories, that's something that you don't really choose because there's a lot of other much more easy paths to pick in life than to be a person who decides they want to rearrange words on a little piece of paper. <laughs> I mean, it's a very unnatural act, right? Because what you're doing is you're thinking about a story in your mind, then you're using you know, these 26 letters and you're rearranging them in all kinds of configurations, and then you're putting them on a piece of paper and then you're telling somebody else, can you read this piece of paper? You know, there's, 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 there's some shortcuts here we could use. We could use, you know, human interaction, talking. <laughs> we could, you know, tell story. You know, there's, you could draw pictures to tell the story. I mean, there's different ways. In other words, people narrate. They build a business. That's a narration maybe of, and a story of what they're thinking about America. You know, building a business or, you know, starting a family. It's how they're viewing themselves in the continuum of history. So, actually becoming a writer and, you know, doing this thing with words on a piece of paper and asking another person to read it is, you know, actually if you think about it, very peculiar. <laughs> it, it is a peculiar behavior, but it's, it's, it's also, uh, it's a, it's, it's the tools that you use to create magic, right? You're, you're drawing, as, as we mentioned before, you're drawing a, a picture in another person's mind and those word choices and how you assemble those words creates different kinds of imagery and for some the words you know it draws nothing but in some folks you know you literally create a movie in someone else's mind and you forget you're reading words and you're actually seeing images in your mind and as they're flowing and and i'm wondering just from your experience with other writers and just being in the field I mean, what what makes a great writer how do you how do you attain that level where a writer is literally painting pictures in people's minds and a movie in someone's mind? I think there's two things. Um, one is the acquisition of skills, which is, you know, this is, it's a trade. In other words, you have to learn punctuation. I mean, this is what I tell students. These are, there's some fundamental skills that you have to learn in order to sort of break the rules. So there's the understanding of what are the rules of the particular, let's say, genre you want to write or, you know, the kind of stories you want to tell. So what are the rules? And then there's, you have to have something to say. That I cannot control, as I tell students. You know, you, having something to say and then having the guts to say it are kind of connected. So some people, they write and they have something to say, but they don't really want to say it all. They can't turn themselves inside out on the page. So that's, that's where that extra thing is that I, you know, it's hard to cultivate that. That's internal and that's personal and private and, and like a calling where you feel like you, you must turn yourself inside out on the page. Um, you're, you're driven on that level. And I think that is sort of when we think about the writers or the poets that we like to read or that reassure us, it's because they're doing that. They're exposing 
an, an intimate human truth, an intimate emotional truth about the human condition on the page. They're, they're allowing us in and, um, you know, they're ignoring the barriers of, let's say, humiliation or shame or discomfort in order for the rest of us to journey with him or her or they, you know? Um, so there's kind of the, the two and a half parts, right? So the skills, something to say, and then the guts to say. Does that come with life experience, imagination, tragedy? Uh, what often drives them? Um, you know, Flannery O'Connor, I think, was right. It said usually most people by the age of 18 have experienced enough craziness if they kind of look around to really write, <laughs> you know, but people don't want to frame themselves in that way necessarily, right? No matter how cheerful or, or happy or whatever your, your childhood is, it's your powers of observation. So if you observed enough, in other words, by a pretty early age, or if you were sensitive enough and observed enough, you have enough material, right? Um, what kinds of writers uh, often stimulate those kinds of that special storytelling aspect that really gets into the human experience? Is it experience? Is it imagination? Is it tragedy? Is it yeah. So, so yeah. So you have that rock bottom level of experience, right? That you that we all have as we come of age, and then it's. I think it's a perspective, and it's being open to looking at things and asking questions. Okay, so. If you keep asking questions, you can continually evolve intellectually and emotionally and spiritually. And if you take risks with the question, and this is something very uncomfortable that most people do not like to do, because our society is held in place by various structures and systems, systems of government, systems of religion, systems of family. And if you start questioning and questioning, what happens is in many ways you start looking, particularly I see this with younger people, you know, especially towards university. And all of a sudden you're, re you're looking and the structure looks like a mess and you're thinking, what did I believe? How could I have believed that? And then, you know, as you move past it, you realize there's every structure has its imperfection, right? But there's that moment of crisis you have often as a younger adult. And I think, you know, the writers we like and admire, they keep asking questions about those systems and how they work and the cost of these systems on communities and on the individual, the individual spirit, because there's always exceptions. We cannot all function under one faith and we cannot function always under one government or always under one idea of community because there's always a few people who are different for whatever reason. And then the system doesn't really work for them. And so what do we do and how do we show compassion and how do we show understanding and tolerance and, and welcome people into a community who don't seem to belong to this community, you know, for whatever reason. So I think um, writers who help expand our experience of the human condition are those who take the risk to keep asking the questions continually is, you know, what do I think about this? You know, you will find more writers then let's say I notice this, then actors or performers and musicians who question religious structures 
Okay. And I believe that this is because as a writer, there's a deep understanding of how a text is created, how there are minds behind the text and how someone had to write the text. It's not this mysterious thing that appears from the sky floating on wings. And then we are obedient to this text, right? So a writer is very well aware that someone would have had to craft these texts and what goes into making a text. So what this does, I think, for many writers is, you know, the way they're looking, therefore, at religious texts, for example, is very different, right? You're looking maybe at a spiritual truth or a particular story, but you won't necessarily take every single word um, in the same way as somebody who doesn't have the power to create a text. You're going to look at it very differently. Um, and, um, and versus, let's say, someone who performs a text. You know, when you sing, you, you have to take the notes and you riff on them, but you're not creating the music. You are a singer. You sing the song that somebody wrote. It's different than being a songwriter, right? So um, I think that, you know, every area of art or creation or whether that you be your reader or or author, um, you know, it's all good. It's just that there's going to be different roles and different ways of looking at the human experience, depending on what your mm -hmm. skill set is and how you navigate society in that way. Let's talk about your book, um, your award-winning book, Swimming in Hong Kong. It's a series of short stories uh, about characters in Hong Kong, Korea, and the United States. Uh, you know, we've been just talking about outsiders and the struggles of outsiders coming into a structure. Uh, how, tell me the journey of writing this book. How did you, as a writer, develop these short stories? It, it seems like just reflecting on your entire life, it's, they are actually places that you've lived in the past, and I'm imagining it's a, somewhat of a reflection of your own life. Yeah, I formally started writing that book in 1997. When I after my sojourn, I was in Korea for 20 months, I believe, 18 to 20 months, and um, living there, uh, freelance writing, and going to the Language Institute, the Ohakdong there. And um, I landed back in Los Angeles, and I started writing the short story Languages, which is one of the short stories in that book. And um, the, the book itself was pretty much done by 2004, five, 2004 to five. Um, and by that time I had been, you know, I'd been living in different places. I had a lot of different kinds of experiences. So all of that kind of went into the short story book, at which point I was also still kind of in training as a writer. That's when I went to my master's degree programs, my MA and my MFA. And I really kind of, learned the craft or honed the craft of, of writing fiction at that point. And then I shelved it. It got rejected a bunch of times. I took it out. I rejected it more, took it out. You know, each story has been rejected like at least a hundred times and I'm not exaggerating here. Um, it's just that what changed the literary landscape for me was the internet which sounds crazy now because I might as well be talking about, I don't know, like a horse and buggy or something. <laughs> but, but before um, people could click and see on a screen multiple images of different kinds of people, 
interacting and living in all these different spaces and kind of different configurations of groups and experiences, this didn't seem real in a way to people. People did not fathom an African-American woman talking to an old Chinese man. That just, you know, that might as well have been from Mars when I wrote that. You know, I couldn't, where could I submit it? Not to an African-American journal. I'm not African-American for a literary journal. I'm Asian-American, but I'm writing about like an old Chinese man and a black woman. This is like really not what Asian-American literary journals also were publishing, right? They tend to publish a lot of immigrant narratives at the time. So, and it was not taking place in America. So my experience was um, being an outsider in a lot of multiple places geographically, and also even within, I think, my own nation, so to speak, because I think it had to do with my immigrant cycle, right? I, you know, my, I'm like a third generation American already, right? So the book was simply a long journey of understanding how people need certain kinds of images before they accept things on, on a certain level. You know, it, it, it converges, but this is why there needs to be more different kinds of stories because there's so many different kinds of experiences and there isn't one immigrant narrative. There isn't one story of our nation and you know, it behooves us to, to support different kinds of storytelling and, and see that there's so many different ways we can be as Korean Americans, as Asian Americans, and um, just to tell those stories. Um, this actually leads beautifully into my next question. Is it, is it important to have more Korean Americans to become authors and storytellers? And if, if there's a young aspiring author out there that's listening to this podcast, what would you encourage them to do? Oh, yes. Of course, we need more Korean American stories. We can have many, many more of them, right? Because there is not a singular Korean American experience. And our particular Asian American community is quite unique, actually, on a global scale and otherwise. Um, and so I would definitely encourage this young person to first thing is to get those skills in place, right? And these are fostered by um, not simply classes, you know, but read, read everyone, read everything, imitate, right? Um, find someone who can be your friend in the trenches while you're both struggling and writing, someone who can cheer you on. You only need one or two fans, and you can be their fan too, but we all need those because it's very lonely writing, right? So you need to have a few believers in your dream and um, have faith that your story is a worthy one. And also understand, even for those people who are not necessarily writing on a page, that the Korean American story is a broad one and that our story is our life. Like, as I say, we create the story of our lives. We author who we are. And the issue and the problems arise when we don't know what to author because we've never seen an example before us. And have faith that maybe your story, even if you haven't seen another person live your story, 
you know, write, write, never mind, write the story, but live your story. That your story, as long as you're authentic to yourself, is completely worthy. And that, you know, like it or not, maybe you're, you got to anoint yourself a pioneer. That's just what happens, you know, and know that that's okay, you know, and that there are people who've had shades of your experience. Maybe they're Japanese American, maybe they're Vietnamese American, maybe they're Native American, maybe they're a white American male. They've all had different aspects of what you are now trying to make yourself, right? And so borrow and learn from these examples and have faith that you can author your own narrative and that your narrative really is worthy. You know, it might not look like the narrative that maybe all your parents want you to have, <laughs> but it's okay. You know, you, you have to understand what you can do and the potential of who you are. And so there's definitely always more room for Korean American stories. And that's very crucial, but it's also important for Korean Americans to see that there's so many ways we can author our life. And this is really the task that we, we write ourselves into existence. Well, let's, let's talk about that topic. I mean, you've, you've uh, spoken on the issues related to identity and the concept of polyculturalism. Um, for those who are not familiar with that concept of polyculturalism, could you tell us how that, what that is and how that's different from, say, multiculturalism? Yeah, so multiculturalism um, was a word that came to prominence in the 90s, really, in the United States. And it was an acknowledgement of, um, of how a diverse society functions, that there's going to be multiple cultures interacting and intersecting with each other, um, and that we should acknowledge their point of origin and should understand how, uh, you know, uh, a multi instead of a monocultural society functions in terms of allocation of funds or administrative priority, um, various kinds of public policy, etc. sort of fair treatment across the board and across, you know, the spectrum of government, private industry work, whatever, education. And um, multiculturalism, however, I feel given the situation of the globe and our acknowledgement now of different issues that are not simply um, national, but as we can see by the pandemic, actually global, is limited in that it primarily and prioritizes the nation state, the interests of the nation state. And um, so we need to have this philosophy, and I'm talking about this in philosophical terms. We need to have this philosophy in order to make sure, you know, certain people, you know, it functions within a nation state. Polyculturalism, the word um, I feel is more 21st century, and it can work in conjunction with multiculturalism. But what it suggests is that we can organize ourselves in multiple ways across tribal lines, across regions, across nations, communities, particular identities. So in other words, I'm not simply Korean American. I'm a Korean American woman. I am not simply a Korean American woman from a first generation, you know, family. I'm one also from a fourth 
generation family. I am also a mother. And so there's different ways. I'm an educator. I'm a writer. There's different ways I might be able to organize. I, I take hula dancing. I could like join the hula community. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's different ways that we organize and we claim these kinds of identities. So if we think about um, the word polycultural, it comes from the musical term um, polyphony, which is the idea of everyone carrying the melody. So row, row, row your boat, everyone's singing. Row, row, row your boat at the same time, and everyone's kind of the same singing it. Everyone's equally important. But I think what we can do is we can expand this definition. So in other words, if we think about an orchestra, an orchestra has the first violin section, and then they have the bass and the trombones, and then they have that person in the back you know, that person who's just dinging that triangle, like every 25 notes, and then is dead silent, but that triangle is very crucial. And um, this person, in order for the symphony to sound its best, everyone must be playing, not simply the melody, but different parts of the symphony. And we have to acknowledge that all of them are important in order for us to sound our best as a symphony orchestra. That triangle player has a place just like the violinist, just like big nations do and small nations do as we function as a globe. And this I think is very key for us to acknowledge. Um, you know, the, the history of the nation state is quite young, right? It's, it's, it's hundreds of years. I mean, this is nothing if you think of how civilization has been organizing. So, um, so what does this mean? What are, what are territories? What, what are nations? How can, you know, global warming or pollution in one area affect something thousands of miles across the Pacific? What, you have to organize that across the nation, um, you know, on a national level, nation to nation to address certain problems and policies, but yet it's going to maybe affect a tribe in this other area. So in other words, what we have to recognize is we're, we have a situation of a lot of moving parts and that if we only constrict ourselves to a very narrow single idea, we will not hear the voices that must be crucial. And I think of, for example, of Hawaii as a state, this very small state. We're part of the United States. We're in the middle of the Pacific. Yet from this small state, many lessons have been learned. We were one of the first majority-minority states. People here had um, working healthcare at part-time work before most of the nation did. Um, we were the ones that did not intern Japanese Americans on the same scale. There was a small, I believe, camp here. Um, we have managed in some level to kind of acknowledge that an idea of, of tolerance is a way forward. Okay, this is not to say it's a perfect society by any means. We did fusion cooking before it became fusion right? <laughs> we were doing that like decades before, right? And so our contribution, you know, in terms of how many people are here and everything is very small, but yet there's a consciousness that we have that we have in some ways led. The first Black president was raised here. 
And a lot of his manner and way of negotiating and dealing was clearly influenced by a childhood here, right? So um, I think we're important, even if, even if we are small. So uh, when we go back then to this idea of polyculturalism, what it means is being open to how everyone can contribute to a narrative on some level and maybe in a significant level if we just take the time to listen. How do you think polyculturalism is playing out in the Asian American community? You know what? I think it's uh, greatly improved, actually. There's a growing awareness of people's individual um, like the Laotian community, you know, different, you know, the Vietnamese American community has come into, you know, over the years, uh, different Southeast Asians, South Asians, all these different kinds of um, threads of a larger Asian American community have emerged. And this is great. And, you know, the Asian American ident- identity actually is something that was born in the 60s, right? It was a, it was a term that was coined by an academic, to uh, join in the people of color movement, post-civil rights of the 60s. So a pan-Asian, Asian-American identity is actually new because you know historically in Asia, Japanese and Koreans were not friends. Japanese and Chinese were not friends. You know, there was a lot of you know, animosity historically. It's only in the United States when all the groups face a kind of difficulty within immigration, understanding of discrimination, that they've been able to coalesce. So I think that um, as we continue on in this way, we can assert more of who we are as an individual thread, as Korean Americans, let's say, or as, you know, as the group increases, Cambodian Americans, and this is fantastic. And then we can also raise our voices together. And then we can also continue to expand that narrative. We can join with other people who have been systemically marginalized, the African-American community, the Native American community. There are ways that when we, in this sense, as people of color, can acknowledge how we can together change a narrative of America, this is when we're ultimately going to be strong. What would you advise a young person who, uh, you know, a young Korean American uh, student, and you teach a lot of students, uh, as they're navigating their own self-discovery about their own identity in this, you know, in this kind of fluid environment um, about identity formation in, in the United States and how it's going to change over, over time? Um, you know, now it's interesting because for me, I think... Um, my identity came through, um, you know, personal journeys back to Korea when I was young. Um, and then obviously through my family, but the validity that I sought from the organizations, I feel like, you know, I, I found narratives even more, let's say within the African American literary community, right? Like the books that were there. So what I would say is, the way back to who you are is often being willing to explore beyond what you are, right? And putting yourself and being curious about different things. And what you'll find is that you will then also be able to enrich your own narrative and come back with further strength into who you are, right? And so I think it's about being continually open. You To be 
In other words, more Korean American does not necessarily mean that you're shutting yourself out more from different kinds of experiences. In fact, what you will find is you will assert how Korean American you are and realize what that is the more you take the risk to ask questions beyond. Well, you've been very generous with your time. I, I just had one final question for you. Um, uh, if you could reflect back on your life experiences and you were uh, to meet your 19-year-old self, uh, what would you advise your 19-year-old self? Um, I would tell my 19-year-old self, um, you must understand process on the acquisition of skills and why, okay? And that this process is significant and worthy and valid. I would also tell my 19-year-old self, have confidence that even if you've never seen it done, and even if you've never seen another Korean American do something, to have the courage in your own authenticity and to um, be true to yourself and have a little faith in that way. You know, to, to know that your story, even if you haven't seen your story before, your story is still possible. That's what I would say. To be confident and, and share your story. Thank you very much. On that note, uh, we'll be ending our podcast. And thank you very much for your time and opening up your life to us. I appreciate it very much, Stephanie. Um, Mahalo to you. Thank you so much for having me here. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Stephanie Hahn. If you are an aspiring Korean American writer or perhaps a parent raising a future writer and reader, I hope you were inspired by Stephanie's story and are able to see her experiences reflected in your own life stories. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. As we mark the end of this season, we thank all of you for your avid listenership and promise that we will be back soon with many more stories to tell. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast platform. If you like what you hear, please make sure to give us a five-star rating. Plus, visit our website at councilka.org for show, show notes and any additional resources. Also, please send us new ideas and people you would like us to interview. We need your creative inputs. Finally, a big thanks to our hardworking producer, Kevin Koo, who week after week cranks out these podcasts and make me sound like an awesome moderator. Also, assisting Kevin is our staff, David Wynn, who does the marketing, transcripts, and all the awesome support information for this podcast. Special thanks to Kevin and David. Well, until next time, we hope you are well and healthy in these difficult times. Thank you again for your support of the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.